Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We know that these words make us wise. And that, Lord, if we will listen and allow it to become food for our soul, that it will enrich us and nurture us and mature us. But again, Lord, like James wrote so long ago, we pray that we would not be foolish men and women. We pray that we would allow the Bible to do its work. We pray that your word would be the mirror that would show us our present circumstances. And that, Lord, we would hear what you want to say to each and every heart. Most particularly, Lord, to that specific thing that you want to speak to my heart. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would provide comfort for those who are grieving and strength for those who are weak. And, Lord, hope for those who find themselves in a dark and empty place. In Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and wouldn't let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor or garments, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And in verse 5 it says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women who had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with joy and with musical instruments. And so the women sang as they danced and said... Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Therefore when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. Because he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter, Merah. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul, Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at that time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. You should hear Rolf pronounce that. I'm not even going to try. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. 
and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the, the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, and he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter-in-law, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and Michael, that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. When we came to the end of the 17th chapter, you'll remember at the very end of the chapter, a question was asked and Saul said, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Some have suggested an error or that this is a misplaced quote or comment, but, but nothing could be further from the truth. Saul isn't asking about the identity of David. He's asking about David's father. You'll remember that when David slew the giant, part of the reward was going to be the giving of his own daughter's hand in marriage to the victor. And so Saul has profited from David's victory. And remember the last time we were together and I reminded you that it becomes a type and a picture of Christ's victory. That when Jesus was victorious, all sinners profited from Jesus's death and resurrection. So David's victory over the giant has set in motion a series of events. In the 18th chapter, you're going to see this incredible, bizarre, emotional roller coaster ride. David's victory is going to set in motion a whole new life. David is going to have a new friend and a new family and a new fame and a new foe. Facing the giant and slaying the giant is going to change his life forever. And that becomes true of you when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You enter into a new family. It's the body of Christ. There is a new notoriety, but it isn't your notoriety or my notoriety, but rather the reality that the most famous person who has ever lived on the planet Earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have also a new foe, Satan. He's always hated you. But he's never been more committed to your destruction than when you crossed the line from darkness into light and from death into life. You see, before you became a Christian, you were no threat. But the moment that you do become a Christian, you become a threat to all the powers of hell. David literally becomes an overnight success. Imagine Israel's version of Israeli idol, 
where you go out and in front of all of the people, you do some great and wonderful thing. He goes from obscure shepherd to being totally known, a a name on everybody's lips. And so, as you can imagine, if you've ever been around a person who coveted success, if you've ever been around a person who their whole goal in life was to become famous, you understand something that not all people who experience success do well with success. You probably could think of a lot of examples of people who get a great deal of money and it destroys their life who win the lottery and everything that used to be somewhat decent becomes absolutely horrible. Not all people who experience success deal well with success. And over and over again in this chapter, we read David behaved wisely. Remember verse 5? David went out wherever Saul sent him and he behaved wisely. In verse 14, David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. In verse 30, and it came to pass as they went forth, David behaved himself more wisely than all of the servants of Saul. If ever there was a person who could have gone down the road of pride and selfishness and self-aggrandizement, it is David. But guess what? Over and over again, he conducts himself Humility and propriety. He remembers where he came from. And he remembers who placed him in the position. For every hundred people who survive adversity, you'll find only one person who survives prosperity. There's a reason why God hasn't given most of you a million dollars. It would ruin your life. But every once in a while, God will entrust you with something that you wouldn't normally think that he would entrust you with. David has to keep his feet firmly planted in the real world. And David has to allow his accomplishments to communicate the truth about what's really going on inside of his heart. And again, remember, he keeps this keen sense of his own humble beginnings. And because he's jettisoned with such popularity and success... Everything is now going to be different. Look at verse 1. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It begins with a new friendship. And the friendship between David and Jonathan is one of the closest that you're going to see in all of Scripture. As a matter of fact, when my wife was pregnant with our last child, Jonathan, I was going over and I was praying and I was reading this particular passage of scripture and Jonathan's response to David so overwhelmed me that I thought, wow, if we have a boy, I'm going to name him Jonathan. Now, clearly a friend is a valuable asset. And typically, you can evaluate friendship in light of hardship and difficulty Anyone can be a friend when things are going really, really well. But you've begun to measure your friends not by when things go well in your life, but when you experience difficulty and pain and trial. Who believes in you when your world starts to unravel and shatter? Who stands by you when you're weakest? And so, Jonathan has lived through his father's failure to defeat the Philistines. And it must have been hard for him to watch his dad filled with fear and always refusing to confront the enemies of God. And it must have been difficult for him when he saw the spirit of the Lord depart from his dad. And all that was left was just this shadow of a man. And now here comes a person 
robed in righteousness and the Holy Spirit, filled with the power of God, a man who is committed to the things of God and and the ways of God. And in verse 2 it says, So Saul took him that day and wouldn't let him go home to his father's house anymore. He not only has a new friend, which we're going to talk about a little bit more, but he also has a new home at this point. Because David is who he is, Saul takes him into his own palace. Now, you'll remember, those of you who have been following along in 1 Samuel, that Saul would claim any strong man and any brave man for himself. And so Saul claims David for himself. Saul wants to use David to contribute to his own glory. And for a time, and this must shock you and surprise you, for a time, Saul seems to demonstrate genuine care and genuine affection, genuine love for David. But all of that is about to change. And so he brings David into the palace. He's established a real relationship with his son. But Jonathan is the rightful heir to his father's throne. And Jonathan is going to do something amazing. Jonathan isn't going to simply embrace David's friendship, but surrender himself to David, God's rightful king. You'll note, it says in verse 3, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Because he loved him as his own soul. In other words, this is a friendship that just doesn't seem to be based on mutual interest. Have you ever noticed that friendship is very much like a gift? That's for whatever reason that seems to defy understanding. In different times in your life, God will allow a person to come into your life. And it wouldn't be necessarily the person that you would choose for yourself. They may be substantially different from you in age or circumstance. And sometimes we read this particular passage and we think of David and Jonathan as being these young adolescent guys, maybe 13 or 14. But because Jonathan is a man of war and because he already commands one third of his father's armies, he is a seasoned veteran. He's probably north of 25, 28, maybe even closer to 30. And yes, Jonathan is the youngest of his family. And he might be a person who is as young as 20 years old. That's typically the age where you would be allowed to fight for your country. But a covenant is easy when it's combined with love. You see, a covenant isn't just simply based on circumstances, but it is a willingness to enter into something that is based on more than just the superficial, but the permanent. Love creates the motivation for surrender. And the truth is, when we experience the love of God in Christ, when you become not just simply aware of the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, when you become fully aware that it is Christ who has died for your sin, all of a sudden there is an affection that wells up inside of you and it becomes easy to surrender your, your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you don't think of Him as a person who's going to dictate how you're going to live your life, but rather you think of Him as a person who you can voluntarily enter into a love relationship knowing that he cares for you and that he loves you and that he has your best interest in mind. Now there's a song that talks about the beauty of his majesty awakes my heart to speak. There is this invisible magnet that draws us where we are willing to separate ourselves from everything else in order to have Him. And for some of you, that draw might not be so powerful. But you might be drawn to other things right now. The world, fame, position, honor. 
But Jonathan, it says, and David made a covenant. And by the way, this is going to be a lifelong covenant. And I'm I'm also going to suggest something to you. That as the affection and the friendship and the relationship between Jonathan and David grew, I'm going to suggest something to you that David possibly, almost certainly, informed Jonathan about that circumstance that took place with Samuel. How the prophet had come and anointed him. And that the Holy Spirit had come upon him. As a matter of fact, in verse 4 it says, And Jonathan, look what it says, took off the robe that was on him and, and gave it to David with his garments or armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to point out several things that marked the friendship of Jonathan and David. Number one, there was a willingness to sacrifice on a voluntary basis. And that becomes one of the key ingredients of a true friendship. It is when both people are willing to sacrifice on a voluntary basis. And number two, there's a willingness to protect and defend each other in the face of opposition. We're going to see that in in, Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 19 and verses 4 and 5, where Saul continues to hound and harass David, and Jonathan will plead with his father for the life of his friend. But remember, the plea isn't a son pleading with his father, but a man pleading to a friend's enemy. As a matter of fact, Jonathan will say to his own father, Will, why will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death for no good reason or without a just cause? And number three, there's a willingness to exercise honesty and freedom in personal relationship. After chapter 19 comes chapter 20 in verses 41 and 42 where Saul will wear on David. There's going to be constant threats, constant attacks. The, the threats and the attacks are going to take their toll on David on so many de- levels. David is going to be, begin to experience depression and grief. And Jonathan will take the threats on David's life so seriously that he will arrange for David to escape his father's plans to execute him. And moments before they separate, the emotions will become so over- overwhelming In the text, it will say that David will repeatedly fall on the ground and they kiss and they weep and then they separate. But what this becomes is a a picture of transparency and emotional honesty and disclosure that few people ever experience in their life. I'm going to suggest something to you that other than David's relationship with the Lord, that deep friendship, that life-giving friendship is going to sustain him through the most bitter and difficult circumstances of his life. So much so that when Saul and David die, excuse me, Saul and Jonathan die, and David gives the eulogy of his great deep commitment and friendship to Jonathan, and then the, the extraordinary beneficence that he gives to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, you're going to see an amazing picture of grace. And so their friendship becomes a source of ongoing hope and encouragement. As a matter of fact, when Jonathan knows that his father is in the wilderness of Ziph pursuing David, Jonathan was able to get his friend first. And it says in in, in chapter 23, that he goes to David, and it's really interesting. It says he goes to him and he encourages him in the Lord. That's what friends do. They remind each other of God's grace and God's mercy and God's presence and God's promises. There's no preaching. There's no sermon. There's just this down-to-earth practical encouragement that he that he gives. And by the way, Jonathan is willing to give up those things that mark him as the king's son. Now, I want you to understand what this verse means. It, it, it begins with this sense of equality. David is the youngest son of a poor shepherd, and Jonathan is the son of a king. 
But there's a process that takes place, a process of surrender. And many, many scholars have pointed out the significance of this particular passage in verse 4, where it says, And Jonathan took off his robe that was on him and gave it to David with the garments or armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Think about what that says. Robe, armor, sword, bow, belt. The robe of Jonathan is no ordinary robe. His robe is a royal robe and his wearing of this royal robe would have been apparent to everyone. And it's important that you understand this. Jonathan is the true prince of Israel. Jonathan is the heir to his father's throne. And Jonathan surrenders his claim. And the outward sign of that claim. And he lays it at the feet of David, who God has designated king. Have you ever heard someone say, it's my life and I'm going to do with it what I want? Is that true? In a sense, it's true. Did God give you your life? Yes. Does God give you a certain measure of being able to choose or choose otherwise? The answer is yes. But did God give you your life and give you the ability to choose so that you could choose selfishness and wickedness? That was never a part of God's plan. He gave you your life. And he gave you the ability to choose so that you could choose freely to enter into a love relationship with him. David will be the king. And David will be the king. And I want you to think about this for a moment. And the love of Jonathan will provide in part the steps that the future king will climb. In other words, if someone could stand in opposition to David's right to sit on the throne, it would be Jonathan. But Jonathan immediately gives him his robe and gives him, some translations say garments, some translations say armor. You probably heard the expression, clothes make the man. Or have you ever heard the expression, Dress for the job you want. Well, guess what? Jonathan will exchange his glory and his garments for the one who would be robed in beauty and dignity and majesty. That's what's happening. When Jonathan takes off his armor or takes off his garments and David puts on those garments, it becomes a perfect picture of Jonathan's surrender. He's surrendering his future, but he's also surrendering his present. And so when he surrenders his robe and he surrenders his garment, and then he gives him his sword. Now, now think about this for just a moment. The sword is a symbol of victory won. And the sword was prized above almost everything else. If you have any understanding of the Bible, and if you've read the first Samuel, you'll remember that there is a point in the narrative where we discover that the Philistines have a technological advantage and there are only two swords in all of Israel. Who has them? Saul and Jonathan. Sword may not be a big deal to you, but the sword is that which was prized above everything else. It was the most valuable, the most precious thing that he possessed, and he's going to give it to David. It becomes the perfect picture of surrender for the believer who not only give their robe and their garments and their sword to David's son, the true king, the real king, the king who reigns forever, the king who abides forever. He gives him his sword because it becomes 
a picture of the thing that he cares about most. What is it that you care most about? What is it that you value so much and that you would even characterize that you prize this more than anything else? Husbands might say their wives. Wives might say their husbands. Parents might say their children. A businessman might say his business. What is it that you care the most about? What is it that you value more than anything? What other people think about you at school? The grades that you'll get? What is it that you care the most about? And are you willing to surrender it to He who should be King? He surrenders his robe. He surrenders his armor. He surrenders his sword. He surrenders his bow. Now remember in the Bible, the bow becomes a type and a picture of far-reaching influence. The sword killed you up close and the bow was something that could kill you from far away. And so it becomes a type and a picture of far-reaching influence. And so... Jonathan surrenders not only his robe, and he not only surrenders his armor, and he not only surrenders his sword, but he surrenders what I'm going to suggest to you is his ability to wage war at a distance. His future, the far-reaching influence. He surrenders his robe, he surrenders the garment, he surrenders the sword, he surrenders the bow, and then he surrenders the belt. And the belt is a type or a symbol of service. And this also is given to David. And you've got to understand something that when he's giving him his robe and he's giving his garment and he's giving the sword and he's giving the bow and he's giving the, the belt, it isn't just a guy who wants to outfit another guy just because you know, you'll like the way you look. Jonathan's gesture is a gesture that says, I'll serve you. I will serve you. Whatever influence I have, it's for you. Whatever I possess, it's for you. Whatever I value, it's for you. How can you read that passage and not think of David's son? Because the moment that you realize and recognize and love David's son and begin to examine your own heart and your own circumstances, how can you not freely give to him everything that is you? So not only does he have a new friend and a new home, he has a new fame. Look what it says in verse 5. So David went out and wherever Saul sent him and he behaved wisely and Saul set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's service. There is this incredible favor that David receives. He has been a complete unknown and now everybody knows his name. Do you remember that song? That old TV series Cheers where they would start the show. Wouldn't you like to get away? It's go, it goes, making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. But can you imagine for a person who's thrust into the limelight, do you think that there are superstars who would hope that you didn't recognize them? Don't you think the Brad Pitts and the Angelina Jolies of the world would just like to go to Target and shop like a normal person? Well, they don't shop at Target. At least they go to Nordstrom's. Oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know where they, they go. 
But David's brothers had just a few days earlier disdained him. But now everybody likes him. Saul's officers like him. All the people like him. David has to live with the pain of instant recognition wherever he goes. Do you think the fame is going to go to his head? Is the fame going to go to his heart? But the Bible says rather than go to his head and go to his heart, he behaves himself wisely. You know, success can be like a drug. And fame can be like an opiate. You want more and more and more. So when it says, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And he gives them this position and he, in humility, accepts the position and then acts honorably in the position. In verse 6 it says, now it happens as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. And look what it says in verse 7. So the women sang as they danced and said... Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The number one song on FM and AM and Sirius Radio. It's all about David. And I'm sure that people would go, great lyrics, catchy melody, easy to dance to. And I give it a sacred seven. And Saul, Saul hated the song. In verse 8 it says, Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, We've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? By the way, how does love become hate? How does love become envy and jealousy? How is it possible that affection can all of a sudden be twisted and turned in such a way that it forever changes your relationship? In verse 9 it says, So Saul eyed David from that day forward. What day? What day? Remember the day the lady sang the song of praise for David. The seeds of jealousy were sown in the heart of Saul because David had found his way into the heart of the people. And when David had found his way into the heart of the people, envy grabbed Saul's heart. Anthony Storr once wrote, quote, the word jealousy is often used as if it were synonymous with envy. But I think the distinction worth preserving. Jealousy is predominantly concerned with the fear of loss of something one possesses. Envy with the wish to own something another possesses. Saul is the king. And David is not. So what does David have that Saul doesn't? The presence of God. The plan of God. The favor of God. The blessing of God. Once again, if Saul had simply elected to honor God and obey God, I'm going to suggest to you, if, if Saul would have just refused the jealousy and, and embraced what was right, if he would have sought forgiveness, if he would have said, you know what, I want to obey God and I want to obey the will of God and I don't want to disobey God, he would have found forgiveness and hope and mercy, but he decides to oppose the will of God and he decides to oppose the plan of God. And when you oppose the will of God and when you oppose the plan of God, guess what? There's going to be an emptiness and a darkness and a wickedness that wells up inside of you. 
When you oppose the plan of God and when you oppose the will of God, it invariably invites the wrath of God. Hard words? I think maybe they are hard words, but they're true. What's God's plan and what's God's purpose and what's God's will for you? Are you cooperating or are you opposing it? There was a new friend and there is a new family and there is a new fame for David, but there's also a new foe. Look what it says in verse 10. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. This is a very difficult translation in the New King James Version where it says the distressing spirit came from God and he came upon Saul and he prophesied in, inside the house. You, as the reader, might be left with the impression that he begins to speak true words from God. But I'm going to suggest to you that there was something else that began to happen. He began to babble and say words and things in an incoherent fashion. So this isn't prophecy like you and I understand a word from God, but rather these are incoherent words that begin to race throughout the house. In other words, he begins to act like a madman. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. In verse, verse 11, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. That should shock you. You know, it's one thing to be in the presence of a person who tries to spin you to the wall once. Remember the saying? Fool me once. Shame on. Fool me twice. Shame on. What? David? How could you possibly be put in a position where this could happen not once, but... You know what? Think about what's happening. In submission and humility, David remains in dangerous circumstances. Now, am I suggesting for even a moment that if someone tries to pin you to the wall with a spear, that you shouldn't get out of there? Let me be very careful how I word this. If your wife waits till you fall asleep and then sews the bed sheets together and then comes with a baseball bat and beats you senseless and you go, you know, is that grounds for divorce? I would say that you have difficulties and issues that you're going to have to struggle with in your marriage. But it makes perfect sense that you're going to get out of harm's way. But the very fact that he stays in harm's way is interesting on so many different levels. Because you would think that at this point, the text should say, and David began to be afraid of Saul. But look what it says in verse 12. Saul is afraid of David. Does that make sense to you? How come Saul is afraid of David? Look what it says. Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. There's something terrifying. When you know that you are absolutely, positively, unequivocally outside of the will of God. And not operating under the auspices of the Spirit of God. And the person with you is walking in humility and surrender, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 13, it says, therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. In other words, when you see the expression, he went out and came in before the people that David has this very high profile, very high visible ministry. It would be like saying, and they saw him on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, and yes, Fox News. He's on all the channels. 
And everybody is seeing him. There's a constant scrutiny of his life. But look what it says in verse 14. And David behaved wisely in all his ways. And look what it says. And the Lord was with him. How do you deal with success? Make sure you conduct yourself wisely. Make sure that the Lord is with you. And look what it says in verse 15. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. I want to draw attention to to verse 15 where the word translated afraid could also be translated in awe. The idea being, therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was in awe. The idea being, Saul is impressed with David's Humility and wisdom and maturity, because if there is constant pressure and constant pain and constant persecution, this isn't the time that you normally see humility and and wisdom and maturity. But in direct proportion to the persecution and the pain. He continues to conduct himself with wisdom and maturity. And look at verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. It wasn't just simply that he was a celebrity. It wasn't just simply that he was a name on everybody's lips and a song in everyone's heart. It's because he was always there and he always did what was right. And this becomes very, very interesting to me because, again, there was a time in Jesus' ministry, the future son of David, was there a time when all of Israel and all of Judah flocked to the ministry of Jesus and they loved him? And he was... His, his, his name was on their lips and he was a song in their hearts. But Saul is a false shepherd. Saul is a, is a selfish shepherd. Because Saul is more concerned about growing his own wealth and power and status and, and, than, than what it's going to be like. He's trying desperately to hold on to a position that no longer belongs to him. You know when you're most like Saul? It's when you hold on to the position that rightly belongs to Jesus in your life. He's your king. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's the song. David's concern is for the glory of God and for the glory of the Lord of hosts. And the people are dear to his heart. David has killed a lion, and David has killed a bear, and David has killed a giant. But do you know why the people love David? And do you know why the people follow David? They love him, and they're willing to follow him. Because he constantly leads, leaves them with the impression that the Lord God, the Lord God of hosts, is the true shepherd. He is a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in humility and wisdom, and conducting himself, not in pride and in arrogance, but in selflessness and sacrifice. You know what happens? Everyone's ready to follow him, including the people closest to Saul. Even his immediate family go, wow. I think I love him too. Look at verse 20. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul. And the thing pleased him. Why? Verse 22. And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you. Not lie. And all his servants love you. Maybe. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. In verse 28. Thus Saul Saul knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Note that again, verse 28. 
thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. For the second time, we're told that Michael, Saul's daughter, loves David. She does love him. But you know what's interesting? She never completely abandons her father's character. Saul gave her to David in order to be a snare. And Michael's love is different from Jonathan's love. Michael is willing to risk her life to save David, but she's never quite willing to serve David's God. And by the way, you'll remember the story when the Ark of the Covenant is brought back into Jerusalem and David humbles himself and he dances. The act honored God, but it embarrassed his wife. And she despised, the Bible says, David in her heart. She rebuked David to his face. And because she was so completely out of touch with her husband's heart, the Lord never allowed her to conceive a child. There was only barrenness in her life. But you know what? In the end, that's what flesh does. The flesh can never produce fruit that lasts forever. And so, Michael, the daughter of Saul, becomes a type and a picture of even a religious affection. The things that are honorable. By the way, are there people who love church? And love the Bible? And love religion, for that matter. But for whatever reason, they never cross the threshold. And genuinely, and fully, and truly, and in complete humility, love the Lord of the church. And in verse 29 it says, And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. And by the way, the rest of the book is going to expand on that. The New Testament says, The flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are constantly at odds with one another. The flesh is always going to seek supremacy in your life. But that the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be a constant reminder. Honor God. Obey God. Listen to the Lord. Listen to what He has to say. You know, it was obvious to everyone who took the time to look that the Lord was with David. When the Lord is in your life and working in your life, people will notice. But, but when the Lord is in your life and working in your life, the enemy will also notice. Every, every Christian is adopted into a new family. Every, every Christian has the opportunity to make Jesus their nearest and dearest friend. And every Christian will create new enemies. Don't be shocked or surprised, the Bible says. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will what? It's okay, pretend like it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer... That's right. It doesn't say, for those who are half-hearted, compromising Christians... Things will go pretty well. But the moment you say, I'm going to know him and I'm going to love him and I'm going to surrender my garments and I'm going to surrender my robe and I'm going to surrender my sword and I'm going to surrender my bow and I'm going to surrender my girdle. You know what I mean, ladies. Not that girdle. The other girdle. Jesus Christ lived a holy life and it aroused fear and suspicion and anger and hatred. David's success will create a new enemy. And he will cause trouble for David for the rest of his life. 
By the way, just a couple of quick things and we're going to close. We don't know the future, do we? But God gives us an opportunity to trust Him every day. Friendship gives us an opportunity to face the challenges that we face side by side. Friendship in Christ gives us this great privilege to cooperate and participate in all of those things that the Bible calls one another's. Love one another, serve one another, minister to one another, pray for one another, support one another. How do you react to your enemies? When they try to pin you to the wall, do you go in for round two? This might come as a shock to you. It might be one of the most important things that I say to you tonight. Over and over again, we read throughout the chapter, and Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with him. Your enemy is more afraid of you. Your enemy is afraid of you. When the Lord is with you. And when you conduct yourself wisely. David refuses to take credit for his success. By the way. Out of everyone in the kingdom, out of everyone who sang the song, out of everyone, who do you suppose was the person who was least impressed with the fact that David killed the giant? That's the right answer. David is the right answer. And it gives us the clue into his character and into his heart. Instead of being suffocated with pride, he continues to walk in humility. He refuses to take credit. He directs his praise to the Lord. He recognizes that it's God who gives the victory. He recognizes the power of God and he recognizes the mercy of God. And he recognizes that in wisdom and praise to God, he Feeds wisdom and humility in his own life. And by the way, that becomes one of the key concepts for you forever. Do you need to deal with pride? Guess what? One of the quickest ways to deal with pride is in humility to praise the Lord. Because the more that you praise the Lord, the more that you glorify God, the more that you sing about His honor and His attributes and His goodness, you become less and less preoccupied with yourself. And you grow. There's still a whole lot that David is going to have to deal with. This battle, this war between the flesh and the spirit, it isn't won or lost in a day. But David is going to have to fight this battle again and again and again. And so will you. Each and every morning you will get up and you will face a new day and with the new day will come a fresh battle because the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are constantly at odds with one another. And this is why Paul writes in the New Testament don't walk in the flesh but walk in the spirit and in the weeks ahead that's going to be the main theme of our discussion let's pray heavenly father lord we thank you for your grace and for your mercy lord i know that sometimes we are we react poorly to our enemies sometimes lord we don't act with wisdom and sometimes lord we don't behave ourselves in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would reveal those times in our lives. But you would also give us the grace and the mercy necessary to confess our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us. And that even though we may have not conducted ourselves with wisdom under every circumstance, Lord, we pray that you would give us the humility to conduct ourselves with wisdom the next time. Again, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the true king. Lord, we pray that we would surrender like Jonathan all to the rightful king of heaven. In Jesus' name.